1: So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the radio Wolfgang and the urge just took me. To twerk.
0: No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on.
2: You could get crock in the cold, but...
0: Die Verantwortung für, für Überwachungsmaßnahmen von der Mordgefährdung gefangenen liegt nach an Angaben von Volksverliebten der tragmanns I expect to know that have been coming for a very long time, that Orwell's 1984, I think, illuminates lets us see in a different way.
3: It suggests, for instance, that we don't really need to be brainwashed. We don't really need to go over lengthy processes of conditioning. We just need to be told to do something and we just do it, even if we see that it is causing great harm to somebody we have just met
4: one of the things that came up was like well we could use drones to you know trick people into into thinking that they're being observed and you know elicit cooperation from people in that way and that, that's you know sort of a chilling effect um, that occurs there
0: so this idea that we might be wrong about what is true is a hugely potent political motion and it's one that we're slowly discovering can be used by anyone on any part of the political spectrum. Fox News had their Christmas
4: party there. I, that I, tell you. I, chose DC Hotel. I was wrong.
1: All of us are susceptible to uh, fake news and lies and distortions uh, because of the way the brain works. It evolved over tens of thousands of years in a world that was much simpler and had a lot less data and a lot fewer numbers.
5: Hello, and welcome to science the show where we unpick the science within works of fiction. Uh, I'm joined, as ever, by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. There he is. So we ask three big questions about our source material, uh, and in this episode, our source material is a book. God damn it. <laughs> I really? know. A book, very famous book, 1984. Back in the bestseller charts. It is, it is. Uh, How many copies were sold immediately after Trump's election? No idea. It's a lot though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good fact. Rocketed up the, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so close to a fact. Um, I do (laughs) know it was a lot. Yeah, Uh, It it got to the top of the Amazon charts. Yes, yeah. Well, well done, George. Um, Of course, written by George Orwell in, I'm assuming it was 48, but I'm guessing. Why would you guess on that? Well, I'm guessing it because I think you just reversed the digits. Oh, is that right? I, never, I, could, I, could were, be, I could be wrong. Not, no, well, let's no, go with it. No, I like again, it. Again, not a fact necessarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're not I, worried about facts today, I though, thought we? it was No, not really. It's very
2: much in the spirit of the podcast that, that we're not going to worry about facts too much.
5: Yeah, I... Uh, well, I'm going to say it was 1948.
2: Okay, and we'll believe um, you.
5: Yes, good. Um, so, I have read the book, um, but I noticed that you have your pristine Penguin edition in your greasy little mitts. Yes. First published
2: so, uh, in 1949. This is
5: ooh, not... <laughs> oh, well, hang on. Well, that's So when do you think he wrote it? Oh, right. Oh, did, did you say wrote or published? I
2: said wrote. Did you? Yes. Okay. I'll give that to you then. Oh, yeah. I'm very pleased with yeah, that. Yeah, mine's a 1954 edition, in fact. Just happened to be hanging around at home.
5: Yeah. So uh, what I'm saying is you've read it more recently than yes. I have.
2: Yeah. I... When uh, when I saw it on my desk and I saw it in the news, I thought, oh, I'm going to read that again. I haven't read that since school, I don't think.
5: Yeah, so likewise. I
2: gave it another go. It's really good. I mean, it's a really good book. Fantastic book. Not everything survives the test of time like that.
5: Just do a, a little rundown, okay. a plot rundown for so, us.
2: So the main character is Winston Smith. In fact, you could probably test me.
5: This is how we do it. You ask me questions oh, and I'll see God. if I can remember.
2: I've just given away the biggest questions. So, yeah. Well,
5: I know that the main character is called Winston. I'm not all idiot. Right, Winston. And what does he do for a living? So he, he works in, in a department, a government department, where he's sort of in charge of kind of changing the historical record. Yeah, yeah. So he, he like says, oh yeah, we've always been at war with these guys. Yeah, yeah. When he knows that actually they haven't. Yeah, they it's have his to...
2: job to adjust the record in yeah. light of current facts or opinion yes. coming from the big surveillance state, which is of course known as... Big Brother. Of course.
5: Big Brother is watching it.
2: Exactly. So um, he just suddenly has this kind of urge to rebel. Basically, that's that's how the book kicks off with his idea that he wants to he wants to break out of the conformity that's sort of been forced on everyone. And what does he do? Um, this is a tough one.
5: Oh, so he starts a he starts a, a a journal like a diary. Oh, very good. Essentially, because he's quite sort of like he's he's relatively smart. Like he's quite he knows that as soon as he writes anything in the diary.
2: He's done. He's for. he's done yeah, for yeah. because
5: they will find out, yeah. and they will not like it. Yeah, um, because it's not allowed. But he does it anyway because he yeah. feels like he feels like he has to.
2: And the interesting thing is, of course, that he achieves nothing by this, you know, in the long run, over the trajectory of the book. I mean, the book just charts his downfall, effectively. Yeah. So he starts to rebel, starts to think things that he's knows he's not allowed to think, and starts to express them. Thoughts crime.
5: Yeah, meets up with people that he shouldn't be meeting up with. Oh, I won't get her name, but there's a there's a lady who works in his, maybe not in his department, but works in the building
4: yeah, that is yeah. fit, basically, yeah.
5: and starts eyeing him up. And he he is worried initially that she's going to be working for the for the state like for, the, for the thought police yeah, guys. Yeah, but then figures out that she isn't, and they start they start getting jiggy, which is like against uh, the uh, law. Yes, of course, rightly so. Like above a shop or something.
2: Yeah, yeah. Initially they go out into the countryside, romantic, and then it's just above a shop. Mm. But the whole uh, spoilers, spoilers, or not? That is um, okay. Yeah, it's okay. okay. The whole spoilers. thing is an elaborate setup by the thought police. And they both get caught, and it all goes horribly wrong from there
5: and there's a There's a horrible man who works for the thought police, who's like like the the big guy, yeah, and he sort of psychologically tortures Winston and then physically tortures him, yeah, it's lovely in, in room one o one, yeah, um with the old rats,
2: yes. So they know his deepest fear. Yeah. And they exploit it. Um,
5: and then he, at which point he just goes, oh, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he eventually goes, it, go on. It was you, her. You, you win, yeah. take her, yeah. and then and then that's him done. Yeah. They've, they've broken him. Yeah. Um, and he, he ends as a conformist. Yes. It's nasty. It's really nasty. It's, it's, but it's brilliant. I yeah, do remember it's it. It's a very, brilliant. very good book. In room 101, it's the worst thing in the world.
0: Of course, that varies from individual to individual. It may be burial alive, or death by drowning, or by fire, or by impalement, or fifty other deaths. Which death do you fear most in all the world? Will you lead the way, Winston? Dr. me. Not to me. It's Julia
1: not to me? I don't care what you're to hurt. Let her suffer. Not, not to me. It's Julia. Not to me.
5: <laughs> so, question number one uh, just just a light start, really. Are we as humans just fatally vulnerable to authority? <laughs> 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 oh, God. The feel-good podcast Probably And someone who knows all about this is Surbulent Turan A uh, quick note to my wife, Emma. Surbulent Not a bad name for our first child uh, Surbulent is a PhD candidate in political science At the University of British Columbia And he started by giving us a little history lesson
3: So the field of psychology took a real interest In the issue of obedience after the Second World War And when the psychologists that we will talk a little bit about, like Ash, Milgram, and Zimbardo, and when they were horrified and very much dismayed by what they have discovered has happened in the Second World War in what most people deemed as one of the most cultured, most civilized nations in Europe. What made these people do all these inhumane things? And so really right after the Second World War, we have the Solomon-Ash experiments in 1951, And we can call them today the conformity experiments or the the social pressure experiments.
1: The experiment you'll be taking part in today involves the perception of lengths of lines. What
3: Solomon Ash does is he effectively recruits one person and puts them in a group of five to six people and shows them a number of lines, line A, B, C and a line X. And these lines are very clearly distinct in their length. So one is, let's say, 5 centimeters, the other one is 10, and the third one is 15. So not even close to each other. And he asks, which of these lines is the same length as line X? And again, there's really no question of confusion. It's very clear that, let's say, line X matches in length line A. And we watched this, this person that was recruited, that is being experimented on, look in shock as everybody else gives repeatedly the wrong answer it's line c it's line c one one they must be right there are four of them and one of me one and you can see this person looking in shock as people are saying oh it's line c it's line c it's line c repeatedly and he's clearly unable to believe but one by one everyone that's been recruited for this experiment goes on to say, yeah, it's line C. Yes, it's line C. So Ash, in this way, quite clearly, conclusively establishes that the pressure, the social pressure for conformity is much greater than what we see with our own two eyes to be the truth. I know they're wrong, but why should
4: I make waves?
3: to... Following Ash, if we go chronologically, we have the Milgram experiment, which to this day really defines the field. It is May 1962. An experiment is being conducted in the Elegant Interaction Laboratory at Yale University. Milgram collects people with a simple um, TV ad and he gets 40 people to come in.
1: The subjects range in occupation from corporation presidents to good humor men and plumbers. And in an education.
3: And he tries to see if these people are willing to hurt, injure, and be cruel towards people they have just met, just because they've been ordered to do so by someone in a gray lab coat.
1: Axe, needle, stick, blade. Ass blade. Wrong. Nice. I'm up to 180 volts. Please continue, teaching. Neil, you're going to get a shot.
3: 180 volts. Continue, please. Right, and he discovers that, yes, it does, actually. Almost 70% of everyone that he's tried ends up shocking a person that they've just met with 450 volts, which is clearly marked danger, 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 repeatedly. Um, so... Milgram, in his book, is horrified at this result, that it's over 60%, almost 70% of everyone tested simply do as they're told, injuring others because someone just told them to. And so this actually raises very dire questions about how we behave and what we do face-to-face with an authority figure. It suggests, for instance, that we don't really need to be brainwashed. We don't really need to go over lengthy processes of conditioning. We just need to be told to do something, and we just do it, even if we see that it is causing great harm to somebody we have just met.
5: Yeah, it's not um, a particularly pleasant indictment of human character is it no i mean people have have interpreted
2: it to say you know we're all terribly evil but i think you know it's
5: it's not mm, but it's not it's not that though it's it's just saying that that you're easily easily led or 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 told what to do
2: yeah i mean i i wonder because you could whether everyone would actually do this now
5: Oh, you think the experiments are sort of outdated? There's, I
2: think there's probably better methodologies for recruiting people. Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of people do you get necessarily from a you know TV ad?
5: We'll talk about um, the the Stanford prison experiment. Yeah, which but, was but that yeah. one. Yeah, the recruitment specifically there yeah. was a bit awry, wasn't it? Yeah, because it, they it was. they basically ran an ad that said, "Would you like to come and sort of you know enjoy prison life, or whatever?" <laughs> and if you mentioned yeah. prison, then that self-selects for people yeah. who are yeah. you know have a number of yeah. characteristics that, you know, would lead them to behave in certain ways. But
2: with the Milgram experiment, it's interesting because you, you need to control for who you've got there, but you've got these people who are willing to come and do this kind of psychological experiment. And it is shocking, you know, and I, you place yourself in those in that position, would you press the button?
5: And I have to say, there's no way I would do it. With the line length one,
2: the,
4: yeah. the
5: sort of conformity thing, yeah. I am 100% confident that I'm not being swayed by five goons saying that that one is the longest. So, a- absolutely no A lot chance. of
2: people said that they didn't believe what they said, but they just said it so that they would fit in with everyone else.
5: Oi, you, you, you and you are idiots. Yeah. <laughs> this one is longer. That would be, more. I think, more my attitude. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas in the example where the thing is, there is no authority figure there. There no. is just some goons. That's just group. But as soon as yeah, as soon as yeah. you have an authority figure, so a guy saying, "Okay, and now we need to use the four hundred and fifty volts to shock this person," even though I can see it says danger, the fact that it's a it's a guy who I assume knows more about this than I do, and about the you know the the, the dangers and so on, I think then I am less convinced that I wouldn't go along with it. Right, really? I think so. I think yeah. so. There's the, the, an interesting experiment. I don't know who did it, but very similar to the um, the conformity one with the the room that fills with smoke, isn't there? So yeah, you have, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I find that one amazing. I really, I, like that I would absolutely
2: be in the group that did not report this. Wait, really? Yeah, I would. I would.
5: And you could. So, so this is an experiment where you you think that you're waiting outside a room to go in for a you're going for an interview, or, for or, an something. interview or something. Yeah, yeah. And there's um. Three, three of you or, or four. It doesn't yeah, there's, there's, right. there's three there's like or four like people. A there's a receptionist
2: there. as well who obviously is part of the, you know, the staff in the yeah. building.
5: And, um, and then smoke starts kind of billowing out of a vent and you are obviously sitting there thinking, well, that can't be good. <laughs> but no one else reacts because they're all in on it. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I can't remember what the percentage is, but a lot of people, like the majority of people will just sit there and ignore the smoke because everyone else is ignoring it. Yeah. And, and even you, if you think you'd be ignoring it.
2: But are you telling me that if everyone else in the room was just doing nothing, and they, you know, especially the ones who clearly work there and are not bothered by it, the thing that goes through your mind is like, oh, it's fine. It must be fine.
5: But, it, but it's like, <laughs> it's I'd smoke be planning pouring my exit. in. <laughs> like, I, at the very least, I'm leaving. I'm just being like, oh, do you know what? I'm sure it is fine but yeah, I'm just going to yeah. be on the, to be on the safe side I'm off.
2: The funny thing is that these people were still like trying to read their stuff and their eyes were streaming with the yeah. smoke <laughs> 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 just, like, they couldn't see anything. I just like carrying on. It's just yeah. like just carrying on. I
5: also think that I'm a coward so and that feels like right. a sign of danger so I'm just getting out. Of yeah. It. And, and uh, we should talk about the um What's the fellow's name who did the Stanford... Zimbardo. Zimbardo. Oh, yes. Um, so Zimbardo, in the early 70s, uh, did an experiment at Stanford to try and... Well, this is the thing, isn't it? What What was he aiming to do with the experiment and...
2: Testing is—it's it's all about. All these things are about testing us under—you know—under conditions, just trying to see who we really are, mm. as opposed to the kind of thing that we project. And you know, how nasty are we really? And you know, are we—are we actually people who would succumb to authoritarian regimes? Are we people who can be nudged into conformity? That kind of thing.
5: Yeah, because in in this, he's put in an ad, and he's got a load of students, and arbitrarily split them into prisoners and guards and then put them into a kind of prison environment in the basement of a university building and essentially tell them to get on with it. (laughs) And it was supposed to last for two weeks, but they had to shut it off after six days because it was kicking off (laughs) because the guards (laughs) were, importantly, not all of the guards, some of the guards were behaving terribly and really abusing their, their, their power. But the thing about the... Experiment. I mean, it feels like now and in, in every episode I just criticise um, people's experiments. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sorry about that. Here's but, what you, know. you should have done, yeah. says Rick. Yeah, but the thing is, first of all, as I mentioned, putting prison in the, in the advert I think means that you're going to attract a certain type of person. Yes. And then... The guards, although they weren't explicitly told what they were, what was being expected, they were given sort of mirrored shades yeah, and, yeah. and like you know like those nightstick kind yeah. of rods. To, yeah. So you're kind of subtly giving them hints because you're giving
2: them license to terrorize, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, really? yeah. I mean,
5: the mirrored shades in particular yeah. is is that's the the fellow from cool Hand Luke.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's the vibe, like a
5: cruel prison guard. Like You'll kind of create this sort of image of a cruel prison guard. And I think then what happens is people just sort of understand the role that they're expected to play. It's not the role that they necessarily want to play, but they're, they're just... Do, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like that, I'm
2: here now. I've been given these tools. I've been given license to do this. I'm clearly mm. expected to do this. Mm. And I think Zimbardo was in there sort of... It's kind of encouraging, you know, them to extreme. Go on, my son!
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I, th- I think, you know, and obviously it's been wildly criticized sort of since as not being terribly well sort of thought out as a as an experiment. Still showed you something, though, didn't it?
0: I was dismayed to find out that I
2: could
1: uh, act in a uh, manner so so absolutely unaccustomed to anything I would even really dream of doing.
3: And sleep on the bed and mattress. Or you can keep your blanket and 416 will stay in another day.
0: You know, you, you act the part. That's your, that's your costume and uh, you have to uh, act accordingly when you put it on.
2: So it's really interesting that you know psychologists are trying to do all this and and at the same time evolutionary biologists would say well you know what we, you know none of this is really that surprising because we have evolved to live in social groups, you know, we cooperate with one another. We have to work out, you know, who's in charge, who's who's dominant, who's not dominant, and you follow orders sometimes. And and there's something in our makeup which is all about that kind of establishing cooperation, collaboration, and do- hierarchies of dominance.
5: But these these natural tendencies that that keep us alive and allow us to sustain groups, yeah, they can kind of be sort of hacked, yes, by, yeah, by people exactly, in power. yeah. Hmm. But but this, this interplay then between society and individual is something that becomes really important with
3: conformity. Here's turbulent again. Well, the, the question of individual versus societal obedience is really a very complicated one. And I don't know that we can make sense of it right away. One thing we can say with no doubt is that they are intertwined, beyond simple connection.
1: A considerable amount of obedience and defiance in everyday life occurs in connection with groups.
3: One example that we can immediately use here is again the famous Milgram experiments. Milgram has run several different versions of his uh, obedience experiments. In one, the teacher, the person who's been recruited from uh, the newspaper ad, who's supposed to give 450 volt shock, is paired with another person. So they're not one, but two teachers. And the second teacher is a confederate of Milgram. So he's in on the deal. And Milgram asks this second person to at one point say, no, I will not do this. This is not gonna happen. This is not right. This is unjust. This is immoral or something to that effect. And in in these cases, Milgram finds out that When this happened, 90% of the subjects followed suit
1: and defied the experimenter.
3: In and this theory, is Andrew. one of the most central insights that Milgram quite strongly underlines, that we just need to see an example that this can be done. It seems to be some sort of psychic freezing that the, the mind, um, the logic circuits, as it were, do not work as you would assume that they would. And they simply cannot act on all the perceived options. They cannot seem to say, no, I w- I'm not going to do that, unless they see somebody else do it. There seems to be a solidly substantiated research on this, that disobedience breeds disobedience and rebellion engenders more rebellion. So is it individual obedience? Probably. Is it societal obedience? This is definitely the background. Would societal disobedience lead to more societal disobedience? On this, we could say with certainty, yes, it does.
5: So that is really interesting um, when you when you look at the book because it becomes apparent why it's so important for Big Brother and the state to ensure that Winston doesn't rebel,
2: yeah because
5: yeah. the danger is that if other people see Winston rebelling whilst before that they were very happy being obedient, if they're just given an example of disobedience, then they kind of like, it flicks a switch and they go, yeah, yeah. oh, I can do that.
2: This is why you have to have zero tolerance of dissent. Mm. You know, that's certainly how I run my house.
5: Yeah, yeah, and how's that working? <laughs> <laughs> I don't no, seem I to have... laughs. the, have the laugh, says it all, my <laughs> I don't seem to have the big brother
2: authority. <laughs> but, you know, it's that sense, isn't it? If you see, like, a little chink of light, a little, oh, it could be different to this... Yeah and, and if we all grouped together and made this different you know then we could make a difference but actually you know as soon as you clamp down on every single bit of dissent it doesn't take long before you're in a position where nobody will stick their head up and you know it works very well you know that's authoritarian regimes isn't it
5: So, as we as we all know, because it's so um, so sort of prevalent in our in our culture these days, um, the way that Big Brother runs things is through constant surveillance of everything. So, I think that this should be uh, our next our next question: Does surveillance really affect? our behaviour
2: yes it does there's lots of experiments that show that it does
5: we actually managed to get hold of someone who knows uh, all of this stuff amazingly more than you that is amazing Um, assistant professor of social psychology at Cambridge Dr. Sander van der Linden
4: Well, psychologically speaking, there's actually a huge dimension to the illusion of being watched. And so humans have a dedicated neural architecture for the detection of facial features, including the presence of eyes. And so what I mean by that is that we're sort of programmed to pay attention when other people are looking at us. And specifically something we call gaze detection. And so detecting when somebody else is looking at you is a really important cue for people in navigating our our day-to-day lives. And so what's interesting is essentially that the same neural mechanisms, the same parts of the brain can be activated when you just give people the illusion of being observed. And so in our evolutionary past, you know, when we evolved, there were, of course, actual human eyes staring at us in public domains. But what research has found is that you can actually activate the same sort of brain patterns um, without the presence of actual eyes. Remember,
0: even in your sleep, Big Brother is watching. Big Brother is watching.
4: So one of the first studies that was done on this was actually on the computer. And so they were playing what's called a public good game where basically you're asked to distribute a sum of money. And, of course, there's a, an, an interest to keeping some of it, a self-serving motive, but you can also donate it to the collective. And then in one condition, they had a computer character called Kismet um, who was basically in the corner of the screen – blinking it was basically a pair of eyes blinking at you uh, at every round and in the other condition the kismet wasn't present and so what they found was that well when the eyes were present people were donating a lot more contributing a lot more to the collective cause than when the eyes weren't present and um. Some other researchers then thought that's interesting, but it's a computer game. Can we actually take this out into the field in the real world and see if this if this works too? And so they started hanging up posters of human eyes, and including some of our own experiments. And they found all sorts of things that when you have simple posters of human eyes, people. Uh, this was done in a, in a student cafeteria. People are more likely. Students were more likely to return their trays after they used them, and so litter less. Um, in a um, university setting where there was an honesty box and people were asked to contribute, you know, to the coffee fund if the eyes were present, a poster of eyes versus, say, a poster of uh, flowers or something else neutral, people contributed three times more than when the eyes weren't present. And there's lots of examples like that. And in one of our experiments... We thought, well, what about more complicated behaviors like voting, uh, particularly now when we look at democracy and how important it is for people to come out to vote and to have all segments of society represented in the democratic process? Can we get more people out to vote by, for example, sending them a picture with human eyes on them versus a traditional informational nudge, um, if you will? And although the effects are somewhat small in the sense that you know, we found that maybe one or two percent um, increase in voter turnout, it's it's quite astonishing that just by giving people the illusion of being observed that that actually can have an impact on behavior like going out and casting a vote.
3: Make no move until you are
4: ordered. Now we can see you. These are sort of the nice example, but surely the same idea can be used for more sinister purposes, and I think the book, you know, exploits this idea in, in a quite dark uh, context, where we have, you know, intense state surveillance. Um, and in fact, you know, it, it's an interesting question. I was quoted in a um, public hearing, in a judicial hearing report on the future of drones, and one of the things that came up was like, well, we, we could use drones to, you know, trick people into into thinking that they're being observed, and you know, illicit cooperation from people in that way and that's you know sort of a chilling effect um that occurs there and so people are very worried about what the implications uh, of this sort of research could be if it were used for something else than getting people to cooperate with each other
5: oh ministry of information drones oh yes i've got to say oh no (laughs) (laughs) i think (laughs) i don't like it that's incredible the stuff about like just posters of eyes changing people's behavior. Yeah, and
2: it, it just taps into that evolutionary thing, doesn't it? So what's interesting is that humans are quite unique in this. So if you do the same to chimps, they don't respond. They don't care who's but They don't understand
5: what an honesty box is, Michael. <laughs> it's unfair. So you can,
2: you can put pictures of eyes in front of a chimney it won't change its behavior, but any human being will suddenly sort of realize or think that they know they're not real eyes, but it just reminds them of
5: their social responsibility. And, and the thing about gaze detection uh, Dr. Sander was talking about, we've got a specific neural architecture that is just dedicated to noticing when someone is looking yeah. at us is amazing because you that's like something that i'm sure everyone has felt at some point where you just like i know that someone is looking and then you look up and someone is looking at you yeah and i mean it's and i've always thought that that must be confirmation bias and that i can't actually i think it is know. no
2: i'm sure that is confirmation bias oh, but it, well, well, all right fine. but it shows you no, that actually there's a part of your brain that's constantly checking to see whether do you think somebody's looking at me do you think somebody's looking at me and, you know, am I being watched? So, so that's probably like a t- permanently turned on part of who you are.
5: He says he knows nothing about it, hasn't seen any of these reports. Um, is that a problem?
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe he was watching CNN fake news. What do you think? And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake. Fake news has now
5: infiltrated U.S. politics. The Internet is full of it. Made-up stories look like real ones, and they will confirm what you
0: already believe. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. All right,
5: then. So question number three. I imagine you're excited, Michael. Of course I am. We've got very science-ish on this, uh, and have chosen, I think... This is, not a criticism of us, but the most unanswerable and arguably pointless question we've ever asked.
2: Well done us.
5: Yes. Are we actually living in
2: 1984?
5: No. Okay. But can we talk about it anyway? (laughs) Yes, let's do that. The thing is, the, the amount of references that you hear to 1984 are extraordinary. And then, and then as, as we touched on earlier, you know, everyone is reading at the moment. Um, there has to be, there's, there's something in, like, in the zeitgeist at the moment that says this is incredibly relevant right now.
2: It's interesting because everyone sort of says, "Oh, you know, it must be, you know, it's, it's the the Orwellian kind of state and there's something shifted in our view of politicians where we don't trust them anymore and we think they're up to no good and, and there's that kind of sense in which you know we don't trust our leaders anymore but actually I don't think any of us really think that they're kind of evil geniuses. Yeah, in I, fact, I, almost I, quite the opposite isn't I think it? some
5: people do. Really? Yeah I think so. I mean you know I, I get all of my news from you know sort of proper verified sources like Infowars and Breitbart but uh, (laughs) and just to be clear I'm joking I'm joking (laughs) guys I'm joking of course I'm joking (laughs) but I, I think that there are lots of people out there who are buying into those kind of conspiracy narratives yeah that say that yeah there are these kind of like evil coteries of of politicians and and and, and businessmen and corporations who are kind of uh, sort of effectively evil overlords. Yeah. I think that people genuinely believe that. So can I read you something that I read recently oh. in
2: 1984 that made me really think and it's on this question of whether we've got evil overlords or actually whether you know for me I think with social media we're really kind of creating this for ourselves. So there's a really interesting passage Mm -hmm. here. I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) A party member is expected to have no private emotions and no respites from enthusiasm. He is supposed to live in a continuous frenzy of hatred of foreign enemies and internal traitors, triumph over victories and self-abasement before the power and wisdom of the party. And that sort of, for me, it was that that first thing about... That's the
5: passage you picked to read. (laughs)
2: About having no private emotions and being constantly enthusiastic. And we live our lives sort of, basically on social media, being enthusiastic and projecting this image of ourselves. And some of that data is what people are taking and saying, you know, oh, they're taking our data and they're, you know, they're kind of now psychologically manipulating us. And so I would argue that that kind of, we're almost voluntarily giving over ourselves to, to being manipulated.
5: I'm not sure I 100% agree with that. But I'll let it lie for now, Michael, um, to help us uh, unpack this this question, Are We Living in 1984? Uh, We spoke to a handful of academics, including, first up, Director of the Orwell Foundation and Professor of Media History at the University of Westminster, Jean Seaton.
0: There are aspects of now that have been coming for a very long time that Orwell's 1984, I think, illuminates, lets us see in a different way. So you could say that post-truth politics is very obviously the product, actually, of technological changes in the media, what we call the media, in the social media, in that people can more easily avoid a rather trivial engagement, perhaps, with opinions they don't agree with. So it's much easier to live in a silo of like minded people.
5: I think people show their ignorance when they say they want politicians to be honest.
0: If we vote leave on June the 23rd, we can take back control of £350 million a week and spend on our priorities here in this country, including on the National Health Service. Have
5: no shares, no offshore trusts, no offshore funds, nothing like that.
0: Post truth politics we can trace back to the origins of politics itself. And we've become used to it on some level. There's a kind of obfuscation of evasiveness that we're used to. We we look at spin as something that politicians simply do with their time. I'm Dr Simon Kaye. I'm a political theorist at King's College London. The emergence of postmodernism um, in the 20th century revolved around the idea that some of the things we assumed to be true, that those assumptions that create the fabric of our lives, some of those assumptions were unproductive, that they were actually based upon falsehoods or wrong imaginings, that we could be confused about what truth consisted of. Some of the most important mainstream political movements of the 20th century and before the 20th century revolved around the idea that we can be wrong about what we conceive to be visible reality around us, that our consciousness can be confused. So politics has always been toying with this idea that we might be befuddled, that our senses can be uh, manipulated, that we don't really know truth when we see it. We can have something called false consciousness. This is a very important concept in Marxism, for example, and one that has a direct lineage into the emergence of postmodern thought later on. We might all be wrong when we think we understand what reality is, when we say, oh, this is what is in my interest to have a job or something like that, to, to buy into the capitalist system. It could be in someone else's interest. So this idea that we might be wrong about what is true is a hugely potent political notion. And it's one that we're slowly discovering can be used by anyone on any part of the political spectrum. Very simple. You said today that you had the biggest electoral margin since Ronald Reagan, 304 or 306 electoral votes. In fact, George
5: H.W. Bush, 426 when he won as president. Well, no, I was told,
1: I was given that information. I don't
0: I was Sean Spicer, g- our press secretary, gave alternative facts. But the point remains- Wait a minute. Alternative facts?
1: Look, alternative facts are not facts. All of us are susceptible to uh, fake news and lies and distortions uh, because of the way the brain works. My name is Dr. Daniel J. Levitin. I'm a neuroscientist by training and I'm the founding dean of arts and humanities at the Minerva schools at KGI in San Francisco, California. Uh, First of all, it evolved over tens of thousands of years in a world that was much simpler and had a lot less data and a lot fewer numbers than we encounter today. And so our brains didn't evolve systems to automatically deal with those things. You add to that some other cognitive biases such as pattern detectors. Our brain is constantly searching, scouring the environment to find things that go together. But we then make the illogical leap that just because two things happened uh, one after the other, one must have caused the other, which of course is ridiculous. Uh, I just uh, drank a cup of tea and then you called, but I don't think that one caused the other. They just both seem to happen at the same time. And yet we do this all the time. We think that vaccines cause autism, for example, uh, just because vaccines tend to be given at a younger age than autism can be diagnosed at. Some people say that we have an evolutionary tendency towards gullibility and that might have come about for two reasons. One is that if you experience something, if you saw something in the ancient hunter-gatherer environment, you saw it with your own eyes. It was likely true. Now, we're also a social species. We very much rely on other people and, and have since we left the cover and safety of the trees in our ancestral days. So, the combination of those is that you're likely to believe something that you hear from a friend uh, or somebody that you know, or even a quote unquote friend on Facebook. So, what is the long term effect of too much information? Overstressed, sleep deprived, and time starved. I think another factor that contributes uh, to our being so easily taken in by lies is uh, information overload. We're, we're just completely inundated with information. We take in five times more information every day now than we did in 1986. Uh, that's the equivalent of reading 175 newspapers from cover to cover, although we, most of us don't read newspapers from cover to cover, let alone 175 of them. The information we're taking in largely includes misinformation and pseudo-facts and distortions. And it's getting harder and harder to tell the difference between the two. Largely because there's so much of it, we don't know where to start and we're overwhelmed. We've seen research evidence that people who are in a state of cognitive overload like this just give up and don't even try to sort through it because it's too much.
2: We have to at least ask ourselves, around the world, you, here in England, wherever you are, what is it doing to us?
5: Quite a lot to take in there, and I am obviously tempted <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to just give up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure where to where to start I mean basically it's just quite depressing you know with with like false consciousness, we might just be wrong about the things that we think are true anyway, yeah, so that's a problem doesn't that make us check hopefully this is what
2: science is all about it's about being aware that you might be wrong yeah
5: so you know, you could argue that applying kind of scientific method to politics would be uh, would be a good idea you could argue that um I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think it would be in um, lots of people's interests. The the problem that we we kind of, we struggle with cause and effect. Yeah. So we look at a sequence of events and we often will assume that they're linked and that one, you know, the, the thing A that happened and then B happened and we kind of think, oh, so that maybe B was caused by A. That, that in itself is an issue, but it's more of an issue when you have people um, manipulating that fact by telling you yeah. that a, cause B. And then because you don't really know what to believe and you kind of think, oh, that sounds plausible, you go with that.
2: Yeah, I mean, people are, are just having to trust their sources and their sources may well turn out to be very untrustworthy. And we have this thing, um, top-down processing effectively. So, so people really read the news and even if it's you know they're reading the news properly they're only reading it through the filter of what they already think and what they already know and they're kind of you know so they're only taking in the stuff that fits with their belief of how the world already works so so facts that are contrary to what they want to believe about the world don't really sort of take hold in in their heads i say there as if it's not me obviously yeah
5: but i i think it's i think it's all of us we all kind of have these narratives either we've created ourselves or um, have been created for us by one of our trusted sources that we yeah. kind of buy into, and then we just look for supporting evidence, or we surround ourselves by people who we know are going to give us supporting evidence. So, you know, like Twitter is a, a famous example of the yeah. of echo chambers you get on there, where yeah. you know. So it, it's almost inconceivable, and I try and follow a, a range of people, but nevertheless, where there are certain kind of things like you know Brexit and uh, and, and Trump where you go this feels impossible because i just don't know anyone who yeah. is or, or or barely anyone who is who is kind of putting across the the, the opposite the yeah. opposite side yeah um and and then and that fools you into thinking that there isn't an opposite side but yeah. there is
2: yeah you just don't know them do you and, no. and so you live in this little bubble
5: yeah and and this is partly it's not just laziness or wanting to just hear the things that you want to hear it is that thing of cognitive overload yeah and i've yeah. i've massively felt that like i've really try and keep on top of politics and i've 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 nearly given up on on trump stuff now because I'm yes, just, i cannot yeah. i cannot is too much stuff and there's too many narratives and there are too many people saying different things and i cannot i haven't got the brain power or the space in my brain to process it all. Like it would be a full-time job yeah. to try and unpick all of this also, stuff. Also, you
2: don't actually feel like you need to process it all because you've made up your mind that he's a loon. And so it's like, okay, that's job done, that's done. I can just put that to one side. Yeah, but then, because I'm not going to listen
5: to anybody who tells me he's not. But I so I don't think that he that he is a loon. I mean, he might be a loon, but it's more about the people surrounding him and what like the, the aims are, yeah, like I yeah. feel like it's more likely that he's a puppet. And that's just my, my sort of instinct. But I can't, I can't get much further than that. Because like I say, I just don't have the, I don't have the time or the resources. It's such a mammoth task. Yeah. Um, and so much clear propaganda and disinformation is around that, that kind of sifting through that is uh, just unachievable. Okay, and so on so that, just note, giving up I'd like to end the <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, but I, I sort of I, I am I am essentially giving up because of cognitive overload,
2: because of weaponized lies, as Daniel calls them.
5: Oh, yeah, Daniel, we should say, uh, D- Daniel, by the way, gave you a little overview of what he's done in his life, but he's done a lot more than what he just told us about. Uh, what else has he done, Michael? <laughs> he was
2: sound engineer for the Grateful Dead. Yes Slayer. and soundund. Well, no, yeah, not Slayer, as far as I'm aware. Unless that was left out of his Wikipedia. You wouldn't leave that, would you? No, no. Amazing um, music career.
5: Yeah, but Daniel, uh, not only that, but he's got a book out called "Weaponized Lies: How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era." That is out on March the seventh. Do you know what? I'm I'm going to give it a read <laughs> if he'll send me a free copy. Oh, a big if there. Yeah, <laughs> it a... is a big if.
2: It yeah. Is.
1: Everything fades into mist. The past is erased. The erasure forgotten. The lie becomes truth and then becomes a lie again.
5: Obviously in 1984 there's a huge amount of propaganda um, and the propaganda you would compare to, you know, the sort of, in inverted commas, fake news
2: of today. Yeah, very much today.
5: And then there's also doublethink.
2: Yeah, where things, you know, can be true and untrue at the same time, effectively. Yes,
5: which is quite a hard concept to hold in your head. (laughs) Um, so
0: over to Dr. Simon again. In 1984, the totalitarian state that Orwell depicts really has two pillars to it. The first is the surveillance system that can monitor people's activity at any moment. But the other one is this idea of thought control. Pivotal to that idea of thought control is the notion of double-think. But what is double-think? Well, in contemporary psychology we have this idea of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is really the term we use to describe the feeling of discomfort that we might experience when we have in the back of our minds two mutually contradictory beliefs. I believe A and I believe X, but A and X contradict each other. And that's discomforting. That makes me uncomfortable when it happens. And I look, this is the whole point of cognitive dissonance, I look for rational ways to make these agree with each other or to drop one of these ideas in order to bring back comfort neurologically, psychologically. Now, doublethink is a little bit different. It suggests that we're conscious of this conflict in our beliefs, but it doesn't cause us discomfort. It creates a kind of a new reality where we believe that both things can be true at the same time from different points of view or I can bring in one set of ideas at one moment and then drop it in favour of the other set of ideas when it suits me or for Orwell when it suits a totalitarian state when it suits the government
1: Do you
4: remember
0: writing in your diary freedom is the freedom to say two plus two
4: equals four (laughs) Yes How many fingers am I holding up, Mister? Four. And if the party says there are not four, but five, then how many? Five. Oh. Neither the past, nor the present, nor the future exists in its own right, Mister. Reality is in the human mind. Not in the individual mind, but in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal.
1: How many fingers, Winston? Four. I suppose there are four. I tried to see me. I wish we could.
5: So double think is like a, a kind of improved version of cognitive dissonance, yeah. I guess. Because cognitive dissonance, you feel uncomfortable because you have these two beliefs that you can't reconcile and you're kind of wrestling with that in your mind. Whereas doublethink says you can hold both of these irreconcilable um, uh, beliefs in your head and just um, and just kind of use them, use each one at the appropriate yeah, moment. Yeah,
2: it's almost like there's a higher purpose, isn't there, to to this? You know, so you don't mind doing it because mm-hmm. there's a reason for doing it. And Trump, I mean, Trump says things that are verifiably untrue. That you know, people go away and fact check and say that's not true, mm. and he must know that's not true, and it clearly doesn't bother him at all because he has a reason for saying these things, and and clearly his higher purpose, which might just be to bait the media, mm. um, is is you know something that means that he doesn't have a problem with it at all.
5: Well, I mean, it's interesting because you, you'd say sort of in a, in a throwaway um, manner, is it just to bait the media? But part of, I mean, this is just m- my observation part of that is if you bait the media then you can create a much more convincing narrative that says the media is just constantly attacking me yeah so if yeah. you sort of bait them into, into yeah. like getting their knickers in a twist yeah. which is essentially what is happening yeah. then suddenly it's much more um so if i'm then a, a trump supporter then i look at the way that the media is behaving i'm like they're just always after yeah they're like it.
2: attack dogs aren't yeah they?
5: it slowly erodes almost the, the the power and authority that the media has.
2: It makes them behave badly. It also takes away the thing that they do have, which is facts. Yeah. So they're all about reporting the facts, and he's about undermining the facts. And then they've got nothing, so they've just got this liberal howl that how can he do this to our precious facts? Yeah. And he's saying, well, there's something more important than facts.
5: Yeah, But and then he'll always argue, or or one of his people will always argue, that actually, fine, that might not be a fact. But what you're being told is a fact, also isn't true. Yeah, like there's more. The kind of the the, yeah. the subject is always there's more to this. So yeah. the Sweden thing I yeah, thought was yeah. actually really fascinating. That was genius because wasn't it? you know. So so if if you didn't hear it, he basically said, and you know, you look at what happened in Sweden last night, and then there was this massive outcry where people in Sweden said, uh, <laughs> "Did we miss <laughs> don't something? They get anything happened?" And then and then the main kind of response from the liberal media was really to kind of take the piss and say would, like yeah oh awful stuff was happening in Sweden yeah. like they have amazing like living standards and of like this <laughs> and kind of make out that actually Sweden is a kind of utopia but then that's perfect for for Trump and and the message he's trying to get across because then they come back and go but it isn't look at the look, like look at these areas in Malmo where actually people aren't really talking about the fact that there are problems yeah. and we're going to say that those problems are due to immigration and that that is moot but it it, it kind of it enables them to start a conversation with the, the narrative that they want. It it seems both incredibly dumb and incredibly sophisticated and clever yeah. simultaneously. And ironically, for double, double think. Think. Yeah. <laughs> so it is dumb and really smart. So he's at dumb the same and
2: time. he's a, a genius. That's
5: kind of what I think. I think yeah, that is genuinely what I think about about. When, I don't know if it's what I think about him, but it's what I think about his the puppet masters. Yes, his his group. Yeah, his, his people
4: if you look at you know the opposition party and how they portrayed the campaign, how they portrayed
1: the transition and now they're portraying the administration, it's always wrong. I mean, on, on the very first day that Kellyanne and I started, we reached out to Ryan, Sean Spicer, Katie. It's the same team that, you know, every day was grinded away on the campaign, the same team that did the
4: transition. And if you remember, you know, the campaign was the most chaotic, you know, by the media's description, most chaotic, most disorganized, most unprofessional, had no earthly idea what they were doing. And then you saw them all crying and weeping that night on, on, on the 8th. When,
1: when, and, and the reason it worked, the reason it worked is, is, is President Trump.
2: So
5: this has all been very uplifting. It has. I I was (laughs) was looking forward to doing this one. And um, now it's it's, um, seeing me spiral into a deep, deep funk. (laughs) Great.
2: (laughs) I feel like it should be one of those announcements about if you've been affected by issues in this podcast.
5: Yeah, please do contact Michael. (laughs) He is on Twitter most of the time. Let's do a rundown of... The, the three questions then. Um, so the first question was, are we humans just fatally vulnerable to authority? G- yes. Yeah, I think we are. Basically, but it's like an evolutionary thing. It's useful yeah. to yeah. kind of follow rules and when someone sort of above you in the hierarchy says this is what we're going to do, it's helpful to stay within the pack. Yeah, and, and, and it it's
2: important for social bonding. It's important yeah. for our social groups. Sorry, but yes.
5: Yeah, and and the worry is that 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 can be that can be fiddled with. Yeah, by nefarious characters. And question number two: uh, Does surveillance really affect our behaviour? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Um, look out for those <laughs> for those drones that may or may not be watching you. But I mean, if we're affected by pictures of eyes, we're definitely going to oh, be yeah. affected by what we think of flying cameras. Again, canvas. thank you, Evolution. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's all evolution's fault. Yeah. And our final question question number three uh, was are we living in 1984 as I pointed out sort of unanswerable and sort of pointless and think um, well no the answer is no yes the answer is no um, in, in a literal sense and a sort of metaphorical sense yeah but there are elements of it that are kind of at, at play um, particularly in terms of the kind of propaganda I guess
2: yeah um, and living our lives very publicly on social media
5: yeah, I'm not, sure that, I'm not sure that ties into the book. I think it's a voluntary
2: subjection to Big Brother. I mean, I'm not.
5: Are we Facebook friends? No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep it that way. Yeah, I'm all for that. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr Michael Brooks. The producer was Max Sanderson, with sound design by Ivor Slayer Manley. The assistant producer was Cormac McAuliffe. This episode featured Cerbulent Sharan, Dr. Sander van der Linden, Professor Gene Seaton, Dr. Simon K, and Dr. Daniel J. Leviter. They the fear.